We'll be reading the first 17 verses of Acts chapter 21. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, he had launched, and we came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Pateria. And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, and went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand, and sailed into Syria, and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unlade her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way, with wives and children, till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when, we had, and, and when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard these things, we, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, he ceased, saying, the will, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. You may be seated. Good morning. I feel like everybody's a long ways away this morning. With, with the speakers where they are, I, I probably got a little bit of room. Does that, does that work okay, guys? Sound guys right here? Is this good? I'll stop right here. If I need to back up, I will. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in the Word this morning? Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the truth that your Word reveals to us. And Father, I ask today that you'd grant us understanding that we might walk in your Truth, And as we walk in the truth, may others see the light of Christ in us and turn to you, Father, convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak just now. Your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the day of the judges and the prophets... Young Samuel is lying down in the tabernacle under the tutelage of the elderly Eli. It's bedtime. 
But Samuel is not able to sleep well on this particular evening. The Lord called Samuel and he answered, here I am. So he runs into Eli and says, here I am, you called me. Eli rolls over and says, son, I, I didn't call you, go, go back to sleep. The Lord calls a second time, Samuel. He responds accordingly, runs back to Eli, says, here I am, you called. To which Eli responds, son, I did not call, please go back and lie down. At this point in the scripture, in chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 Samuel, there's a parenthetical verse. And it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. The Lord then called a third time. Samuel gets out of bed, makes his way once more to Eli's side. Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. So he gives Samuel instructions on how to respond to the Lord the next time that he calls. So quickly Samuel heads back. I'm sure a bit confused over this mysterious calling of the Lord. Because the Bible there in Samuel 3 also says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And then it happened. The Lord came and stood and called as at other times. We hear his name mentioned twice here. Samuel. Samuel. And Samuel this time, instead of running to Eli, he simply says, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord at this point speaks his words to the boy. And from this point forward, the Bible says that the Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel came to know that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. It was through Samuel that the word of the Lord came to all Israel. The word of the Lord still speaks today. In Acts 2... The Holy Spirit arrives on the scene and he changes everything. Jesus has ascended to be back with the Father. Some ten days later at Pentecost, the promised Holy Spirit, this other counselor that Jesus spoke of to his disciples in John 14, 15, and 16 before going to the cross, he had come and he came with power. And it was this power that was necessary in order to fulfill the mission Jesus called for in Acts 1, verse 8. To be witnesses of Jesus... The followers of Jesus were instructed to wait for this power. Remember that. The end of Luke's gospel on into the beginning of the book of Acts. Wait for the power from on high. This power was key to the witness called for. No power, no effective witness to Jesus. But with this power, they went on to be witnesses to Jesus. First in Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. Into Judea and Samaria, Acts 8 through 12. And to the very end of the earth as we've been studying here these last several months. And will, Lord willing, continue studying through next summer as we arrive in Acts 28. There's a connection, church, between the power and the mission. Jesus is holding up high, I believe, for all to see and hear. The Holy Spirit's ministry 
in you is absolutely necessary to live as a follower of Jesus. Amen? It's necessary. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need his power to follow him. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8. Bears witness that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are what? We're heirs. Heirs and joint heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. The union aspect. With Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. We were, we were buried with him. We died with him. We were buried and we were raised, Romans says. This union aspect. That we might also be glorified together, Romans 8, 16 and 17. Well, the word of the Lord is being spoken today in the text. And in fact, from, from what I can gather in the text, the word of the Lord has been heard in nearly every city, especially of late, as Paul has made his way around the Mediterranean on his third, this third, his third journey. We've covered three. This is, he's finishing his third journey. And on this particular third journey... Paul is receiving and hearing many words from the Lord. These words of the Lord are being spoken by others. The word of the Lord has also come to Paul on a few different occasions in every city, he says in Acts 20. The word of the Lord has come to some entire, as we'll see in the text today. The word of the Lord is going to be spoken through the Judean prophet Agabus. And there's going to be response to the word of the Lord from the believers in Caesarea, as well as Paul's traveling companions. Paul receives several warnings, warnings from the Lord through the Spirit from individuals in various cities. What are those warnings? Those warnings are pointing to chains and tribulations awaiting him in Jerusalem. The text tells us today that Paul is not the only one receiving and hearing a word from the Lord. Samuel lived at a time when the word of the Lord was rare. And I got to thinking about that and believe that we too may be living in the time when the word of the Lord is rare. And that may seem like an odd statement. It's, it's ironic in this that we live in a day and age when the word of the Lord is most accessible. We live in a day and age when churches are found on nearly every corner. And so with a plethora of local assemblies and the technology available today to listen to the word of the Lord from all over the globe, could it still be that the word of the Lord is rare in this day. Is the emphasis upon the word of the Lord being spoken? Is the emphasis upon whether the word of the Lord is being preached? Or whether someone is standing behind a pulpit to say something? Is the emphasis upon the truth content of the word being proclaimed? Is the emphasis upon hearing the word of the Lord only? Is the emphasis upon the word of the Lord carried out in obedience? The doing of the word? Is it possible that thousands of people today are showing up at local assemblies all around the world and yet the word of the Lord remains a rarity in their own life? Have we grown accustomed to hearing the word of the Lord simply on the Lord's day? Are you regularly hearing from the word of the Lord? The Holy Spirit has been given 
to point you to the truth of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit has been given to help you understand the things of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is your greatest teacher. He's your greatest counselor available to you, your guide, your encourager, your comforter. He's the best one to help you understand these scriptures. Remember, he is the co-author of the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says that the Holy Spirit, there were holy men moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit who wrote these scriptures. So as Paul concludes his third missionary journey and makes his way to Jerusalem, I believe the text would have us look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry, I believe, in this text is highlighted in particular. We need to understand one of the foundational things right up front. The Holy Spirit does not, will not, contradict himself. So where there is an apparent Scratch of the head, I don't get this, this doesn't seem to make sense. That's not the Holy Spirit contradicting himself, saying one thing here and then over here saying, oh, something different. That's truly our lack of understanding, our, 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 our place of not knowing certain things. And in this life, as we'll come to see, in this life, and we're probably many of us already have arrived at this point where we figured this out and we've already come to this conclusion. In this earth intent, I'm not going to fully understand all things. But with the power of the Holy Spirit operating in me, there are certain things I will be able to understand. Because the Bible does say in the book of Corinthians that the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God. The Holy Spirit in me is going to help me understand who God is going to help me be able to navigate this life that I live. It's going to help me in my decision making to make godly choices. The same Holy Spirit who spoke through some of the believers in Tyre and various cities around the Mediterranean is the same Spirit who has served as a precious help to the Apostle Paul. The Spirit is speaking today in this text. I want you to listen to how he speaks and how he is interpreted by man. I believe there's discernment needed in the text. You know, we ask the question, are there, here in these scriptures, are these scriptures simply nice moral stories? Or is this really the God-breathed word of God? Is this his word? And how you answer that question, I believe, is going to impact what you hear when you open it. It's either a great storybook or the instructions for godly living from the king of kings. It's sort of like the other day, I was, was putting a new headlamp in. In fact, one of my sons helped with that project, did a fine job. Thank you. But there's an instruction manual. And the instruction manual was pulled out just to confirm some things. My son, as he's working through that. He pulled out the instruction manual to be able to confirm this is how you do it in the right manner. Do we approach God's word in that way? Where, oh, I, I, need, I, I need something. I need to fix something in my... Let's see what God's word has to say about that. If this is God's word, and this is the word that helps us live in a godly way. I need this word in my life all the time. Not a day goes by without it. 
Why, why would you desire? If we just think about it in terms of this word, what is this word? Is this, is this, if this is God's word, I should want and desire this word every day. I don't want to operate a day without consulting his word. I need his word. Paul has been proclaiming this word of the Lord in every city. Whether he's been in the synagogues, whether he's in the marketplace, whether he's in the home, or whether he takes a stroll down by the river in Acts 16, he sees a bunch of women gathering for prayer. Paul's heart has been to get the name of the Lord Jesus out. His love for his own countrymen has been evident. His love for the Gentiles equally as evident. His life has been burning fervently for the Lord Jesus. How might the Lord assess today your life in that same regard? Is there a burning fervency for the name of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and the will of the Lord to be done in your life? The name of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and the will of the Lord to be done. Paul's life witness, we see in the text, is unmistakably bent toward the Lord Jesus. After all he's done, one might think, as you arrive in Acts 21, you might think he's ready at this point for retirement. He's ready to retire. He's ready to take it easy and go back to the Cilician Mountains and just take it easy for a while. Instead, he's ready to keep pressing on toward Jerusalem. He's ready to be bound, even ready to die for the name of Jesus. And you know, as I consider what he says there in verse 13, I find myself going, there's a long way yet for me to go. Perhaps you too are in that same boat. You realize just how far short we come when we read about Paul's life in the pages of scripture. But, you know, I, I think it's important we keep in mind that the word of God doesn't include and chronicle Paul's life to simply make us feel badly about our own life. Convicted? Good. That's the point. If we're operating in sin, that's one of the roles and ministries of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of sin. Don't leave here today simply convicted of your sin. The same Holy Spirit has the power to help you live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So look at the text. There's seven legs to the journey. Miletus is where he is at the beginning of this text. He just finished talking to the group of Ephesian elders. He's in Miletus. He's going to go to Kos. He's going to go to Rhodes. He's going to go to Patara. From Patara, he's going to take it all the way across the Mediterranean. He's going to land at Tyre. At Tyre, he's going to go south a little bit to Ptolemaeus. From Ptolemaeus, a little further south to Caesarea. And from Caesarea, he's going to make the final journey to Jerusalem. That's the trip, all encompassed in these 17 verses today. So we're going to take him a long, long distance in a very short period of time this morning. He's going to finish this particular trip. Much of the attention in the text is given to two stops in particular along the way. Tyre and Caesarea. Okay? It's in Tyre and Caesarea where the warnings of the Holy Spirit are voiced. It's in Tyre and Caesarea where the responses to the warnings of the Holy Spirit are seen. And warnings are given in the form of spoken words. Words through the Spirit, in fact. And yet the warnings are not heeded by Paul. That's the crux of the message before us. 
As Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, he seems to be crashing through a host of warnings placed before him. You know, many of us hear of warnings and we're quick to take heed oftentimes. Whether that's the, in our home, the, uh, we have this phone that you can talk, you know, you talk a couple minutes and it starts beeping, letting you know the battery's getting low. It's warning you. You've, you the longer you talk, it's going to die at some point. It's just beeping, letting you know it's about to go out. Might be a warning from the smoke alarm. Letting you know something, something may be burning. Need to open some windows, get some air in there. You take action to remedy the smoke alarm. If you've been delinquent on paying your electric bill, you might get something in the mail warning you that it's not free. You might get something in the mail that says, hey, if payment is not received in our office by this Wednesday... You will no longer have electricity. Now, as it starts to get colder, electricity is a pretty important thing. And many of us, as we have means to do so, will be prompt in taking heed to that warning. On the basketball court, I have opportunity to also issue forth a warning a time or two. Sometimes it's to a coach and sometimes it's to a player. And the warning is simply translated as, hey, you've, 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 you've come up against the line. That's enough. No more. And any further action in this regard will result in forming a T with my hands, simultaneously putting air in a whistle. And hopefully things get better. Oftentimes they don't, but that's the idea. Most of the time, most of the time coaches and players take heed to the warning. Most of the time. You know, as we think about warnings, as I just described, and then think about warnings here in the text, that's not exactly what we see in the text, is it? Paul doesn't take heed to the warnings. So is he in the wrong? Is he disobedient to go to Jerusalem in light of all the warnings proclaimed? The Bible is not afraid to point out flaws and sins and character issues of God's people. There are many. Is this text pointing us toward the stubbornness of Paul? Is it pointing out his arrogance to do his own thing regardless of the warnings that come his way? There are some who subscribe to this particular way of thinking. I'm not one of them. I believe the text gives good reasons why not to think this way. Paul lands at Patara and then finds a larger merchant ship that's going to Phoenicia. Tyre is the chief town in Phoenicia. Phoenicia sits in the bigger, larger area of Syria. So you have big, large Syria. You have a region of Phoenicia. You have port city of Tyre. Okay? Those three, all three of those terms are in the scripture. It's important to kind of delineate where, what are we talking about here. Instead of hugging the coast all around the Mediterranean, which would have cost him precious time, remember verse 16 of chapter 20, Paul is in a hurry. Paul finds a ship taking a more direct route to Phoenicia. They travel by Cyprus 
to their left as they sail. So if you're looking at your map, you can see Cyprus, and you can see if Cyprus was on their left, they were passing it on the left, Cyprus was on the left, they're going toward Tyre. This journey may have been somewhere in five days of length of time, some 400 miles from Patara to Tyre. The ship lands in Tyre. Verse 3 tells us, for the ship was to unload her cargo. Notice verse 4, while the ship is unloading cargo, Paul and company are finding the disciples. They're finding the disciples. It's interesting because if you flip backwards a little bit to Acts chapter 11 and in verse 19, you might recall at that time, it says those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. So that's back to chapter 6 and 7 of Acts. Remember in chapter 8 there was a scattering and people went everywhere as a result of the scattering. Well right here we get some more evidence of where those people scattered to. It says that when they scattered they traveled as far as Phoenicia. Well that's kind of interesting. They traveled as far as Phoenicia. That happens to be where Paul and company is at. And they're finding. They don't know exactly where they're at but they're finding. And they're going and they're finding these disciples. They're aware there are disciples here. And so they go and they track them down. They spend seven days in this believing community with these brethren. Now, there are two events here, I believe, in Tyre to highlight in verses end of 3 all the way through verse 6. The first thing here we encounter is in verse 4. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Someone or someones among the brethren in Tyre had a word from the Holy Spirit, a word of warning. And the word here in verse 4 seems to be slightly different, at least depending on your translation, it could be slightly different than the word from Agabus in verse 11. But we also have some other words besides the ones just here in chapter 21 that will help piece some of this together. Some bad things are going to happen. The urging here in verse 4 seems to be not to go. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. What's hard to to truly understand and to gauge here in verse 4 is whether or not the urging was coming directly from the Holy Spirit or whether or not as Luke is recording this information, he is simply summarizing it in such a way to say that after hearing the warning from the Holy Spirit, the people are concerned for Paul and they're warning him, they're urging him not to go to Jerusalem. I believe we take texts that are clear versus ones that are not clear as our standard in terms of interpreting the text. This one is difficult to interpret. It is. As you read it, it's difficult to interpret. But in the same scope of text, we have another passage of Scripture that I believe is helpful, helpful for us to be able to get a gauge on what verse 4 says. Okay? So just hold that. Just hold that. I'm putting forward verse 4 is very difficult. It's very difficult. On its own, it's very difficult to know exactly what Luke means as he's carried along by the Spirit to be able to discern, is this the urging of the Holy Spirit or is this simply those believers entire, their response to the warning put forth by the Spirit? Okay, hold that. Luke records a second event in Tyre. In verses 5 and 6, verse 5 says that they all accompanied us. 
with wives and children until we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Uh, Notice, just as a follow-up to verse 4, after the warning that's put forth in verse 4, notice we don't get an immediate response from Paul. Instead, he just kind of cuts to the chase. Day 7. It's day 7. We're on the last day, and and we we need to leave. In a sense, Luke, as he's recording, does answer the warning. In a sense, he does answer it. But Paul directly doesn't. We don't have Paul directly answering it here in Tyre. I want you to notice that a similar scene, as we see here in 21 verse 5, a similar scene occurred in Miletus, remember? When Paul is making his farewells to the Ephesian elders. Here in the course of seven days. This is interesting. Brethren, the families make mention of wives and children. Families accompanied them. They were gathered together to pray. And you get the idea that there was great amount of fellowship and community happening in Tyre those seven days. And while he may have been a stranger at the beginning of the week, by week's end, Paul and his companions in Christ have become dear to the families in Tyre. And Luke records evidence of the close-knitted relationships that have developed in one week. One writer said, the love of Christ is the strongest of bonds. Verse 6 concludes then the ministry in Tyre, stating that they boarded the ship and the families from Tyre went back home. Next leg of the journey took them to Ptolemaeus in verse 7, where they greeted the brethren. They stayed for one day. From there, they traveled another 40 miles south to Caesarea. And this was the final stop along the way before reaching Jerusalem. Caesarea was the port city for Jerusalem. It was approximately 60 miles away from the holy city. And upon arrival in Caesarea, they enter the house of Philip. And this seems like such a blast from the past. They enter the home of Philip. Do you remember the ministry of Philip? Back in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 8. Philip is chosen as one of the seven along with Stephen, to remedy the food distribution problem among the Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem. And like Stephen, Philip is deemed a man of good reputation. He's deemed a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man full of wisdom. And so when we go back and you recount Acts chapter 8, it helps you see the usefulness of Philip in Samaria and in the region of Gaza along that desert road where he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot returning from his worship in Jerusalem. So Philip here in Acts 21, we see in the text, he is titled Philip the Evangelist. And you read Acts chapter 8, and you begin to see how true the title is. Whether preaching Jesus to an entire city of Samaria, or sharing the good news with an important Ethiopian official in a chariot, we see Philip is gifted with sharing Christ. When you get to the end of Acts chapter 8, if you turn to the end of Acts chapter 8, Philip in 38 is baptizing this Ethiopian. And in verse 39, it says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more. Can you imagine that? He's coming up out of the water, and Philip is gone. The Spirit just takes him away. Now, we praise the Lord, we have some idea where he ended up. Verse 40 tells us he ends up in Azotus, and he ends up preaching the word until he arrives in verse 40. Where does he arrive? Caesarea. Some 20 years or more 
have elapsed since Acts chapter 8. Philip, we're told, now has four unmarried daughters who prophesy. Verse 9. Paul and his companions, they lodged with Philip during their many days. That's what it says. Verse 10. We stayed many days. You know, I'm drawn to the conversations that no doubt took place during this particular time. Can you imagine Philip and Paul sharing testimonies of all that God had done through them over the years? Can you imagine Philip recounting the time when he had to flee Jerusalem following Stephen's martyrdom? Philip had to flee along with many others. They had to flee Jerusalem due in large part to a man named Saul, Paul, a man who at the time happened to be breathing out murderous threats against the church. What a joy for Paul. To hear from the mouth of Philip that God had been orchestrating marvelous things in Samaria even in the midst of his persecution of the Lord's church. Both of these men were preachers of the gospel with hearts ablaze for the lost. You stay around these two men for very long and you may just get evangelism fever. I mean, wow, what a duo to be around, to have conversation with. Both of these men had great compassion for people to communicate Christ. Now, the text doesn't tell us that Philip's daughters prophesied. It doesn't say that they necessarily put forth a warning to Paul here in this instance. But the text does relate a prophecy in verse 10. It says a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. This Agabus has already been mentioned in the book of Acts. But notice that the word of the Lord is coming again. The warning is about to be sounded once more. Now, Agabus, if you flip backwards a few pages in Acts, he arrives on the scene back in Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So we see that Agabus has already shown up. He's already spoken a word of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. There's been a response to what Agabus has spoken. Agabus shows up here again in chapter 21. Here Agabus shows up with another word from the Lord. And he delivers his word accompanied with action. In the style of the Old Testament prophets. You know, you might recall some of those times when the Old Testament prophets, when they were called on by God to not only speak a word, but they were called to demonstrate the word. Some of them had incredible assignments. Let's start with Hosea. How about Hosea's assignment? Go take to yourself a harlot.
The picture was one of God and his people. The picture was one of the unfaithfulness of God's people. It was to be a a watch and a warning, a symbol, a sign of this is what it's like for my people. My people are treating me. They're profaning me. They're walking away from me. They're turning away from me. They're not listening to me. But God, in the same time, is also pointing out his incredible love, isn't he not? His undying love. His steadfast love through his prophet Hosea. What about Isaiah? Isaiah has a prophecy as well. Isaiah is giving the picture. He has a word, but it's also a picture to Egypt and Ethiopia. A very candid picture. A very vulnerable picture of walking around naked and barefoot for three years. There's the picture of Ezekiel. You remember Ezekiel had to lay on his, on his side for 390 days? On behalf of Israel. And then he flipped over for another 40 days for Judah. There are pictures God gives to his prophets. They're not just pictures to go, ooh. ah." They're meant to, to actually inform and engage and tell us something. Agabus, in some similar way, does this here in Acts 21. Having taken Paul's belt, he bound his own hands... And feet, saying, Thus says the Holy Spirit. In the words of the prophets, Thus says the Lord. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt. Who owns the belt? Paul. And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Actually, it doesn't quite pan out exactly that way. Seems like the ones, the Gentiles are the ones who are going to actually rescue him from the Jews who are about to kill him. But don't try in the text, don't try getting caught up in figuring out how Agabus configured his own hands and feet with Paul's belt. If you think about that, It's very possible that Agabus, as he's speaking the word of the Lord, is himself tied up in knots. If you think about someone tying himself up, his hands and his feet, with his own hands. He's bound. As Agabus prophesies the word of the Lord, there is before those gathered, a picture of one tied up, one bound. The warning has been given, this time by a reputable prophet of Judah. Are you going to heed the warning, Paul? We see immediate response to the words of Agabus in verse 12. Not from Paul immediately, but from the Caesarean believers and even the companions of Paul now. Now, when we heard these things, we, Luke is writing, right, firsthand, we, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him. The idea here is they kept 
on pleading with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Have you ever been in a situation where the voices around you are all saying the same thing, all of them, that is except you? There are some who find it heroic to always be on the other side of all the voices. Some relish the standing alone, seeing that as a token or a badge of courage in the Lord. We need to understand there are many times when we may need to stand alone. There are going to be times, many times perhaps, when the world is going a different direction. But standing alone isn't the end-all objective. There's discernment needed, isn't there? Wisdom. Knowledge of the word of the Lord. Prudence. You may very well be deemed a fool for standing alone if the word of the Lord would call you to be standing elsewhere. You don't get a button from the Lord for simply standing alone. Without the power of the Holy Spirit operative in your life, you have no idea, really, whether to stand alone or not. It's in these critical moments, the the decision-making moments, where the ministry of the Holy Spirit helps discern and point you toward the truth as it is in Christ. As your guide, He directs you in the path of the Lord. As your teacher, He speaks only the things of Christ. And so when we look at verse 13... We have Paul's response to the response of those in verse 12. Which is a response from Agabus in verse 11. Paul answered. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not, I'm ready not only to be bound. But also to die at Jerusalem for the name, for the name of the Lord Jesus. So with everyone around him weeping and pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem, Paul speaks. He speaks not as a fool, but as one steadfast in the Lord. Like Jesus in Luke chapter 9 verse 51, Paul steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. Paul is ready. Not simply to be bound with chains, but to die in Jerusalem. Is it wrong to go to Jerusalem knowing that tribulations await him? Is it wrong to bypass the multiple warnings issued by men? How do we know that Paul is not disobedient to the warnings? There's some good questions in the text. I'd like to give you some responses to perhaps a few of those questions in terms of how do we know Paul's not disobedient? I'll give you a couple. First of all, we must not equate the word of the Lord with a flight response. We must not equate the word of the Lord with a flight response. In Acts 9, 15 and 16, we see that Paul had a calling on his life. He's a chosen vessel of mine, Jesus said to Ananias, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul is on course, and we talked about this last week, his course to bear the name of Jesus and suffering is going to be a large part of that equation. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, before he goes to the cross, he says, in the world you will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. An interesting statement in the fact that he hadn't died yet. Consider it done, Jesus says. I've overcome. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, as he's getting ready to leave and die, this is his last letter, he's writing to Timothy, and he says, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I think we also need to see that Paul's pattern of obedience to the Holy Spirit, Paul's pattern of obedience to the Holy Spirit, look back in Acts chapter 13. At the beginning of Acts chapter 13, in verse 2, remember they're in Antioch, and it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, what did the Holy Spirit say? Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul in our text today, Saul and Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Is it out of the question that this work of the Holy Spirit included suffering, chains, even possible death for the sake of the Lord Jesus? Acts chapter 16, we see that as he's journeying in his second missionary journey, we see that he is planning to go. He's in the region of Galatia, and it says in verse 6, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they came to Mycenae, They tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. And so passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. And it was in Troas where they received this vision. And in the vision, the word of the Lord came and wanted them to go to Macedonia. And his conclusion was this. I guess the Lord desires for me to preach the Lord Jesus in Macedonia. And so Paul goes. There's a pattern of obedience in his life. I think we also need to realize that the Holy Spirit has never before spoken to Paul about not going to Jerusalem. I believe the testimony is quite contrary. If you look at Acts 19, verse 21, he's in Ephesus when these things were accomplished. Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go where? To go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. The Holy Spirit seems to be pointing him to Jerusalem, not away from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20, verse 16. It says, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be where? At Jerusalem. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. He says, see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, chains and tribulations await me. That's the warning being put forth by the Holy Spirit in every city. These people are warning Paul through the Spirit. They're speaking through the Spirit. And they are interpreting what they're hearing through the Spirit. Let's understand, this is not some fuzzy signal that the Holy Spirit's giving to these people who are putting the warnings forth. It's a very clear signal. The Holy Spirit's not fuzzy. Where there's fuzziness, it's it's with us, isn't it? How does Paul define his ministry? That's another question we could ask. How does he define his ministry? Acts 20, verse 24, he says, None of these things, talking about the tribulations and chains... None of these things move me, nor would I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received, who did he receive it from? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If Paul received such a ministry from the Lord Jesus Christ, how is it deemed disobedience to continue onward to Jerusalem? Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14 and 15, Paul says, for the love of Christ compels me. It compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, fact, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. In other words, should no longer live for themselves. I know there's warnings up ahead in Jerusalem. And I know people have talked about chains and tribulations. I'm not so concerned about myself. I, this doesn't bother me. I do not hold my life dear to myself. But my life instead is lived for the one who died and rose again. Acts 14. Another evidence. Acts 14. 20, he'd just been stoned in Lystra. The, the disciples gathered around him. They minister in Derby. When he had preached the gospel in Derby and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, listen to what they said, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. This was part and parcel of the gospel. This was part of it. And we talked about it back then, about, hey, this is a guy who got stoned in Lystra and a few days later decides, hey, let's go back through Lystra. To many of us, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when you've received a call from the Lord through the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has set you apart for his work to accomplish, that's what we're seeing evidence of here in the text. Two other passages, by the way, that help us with looking at his ministry. Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all runners run? Run in such a way as to get the prize? Remember, Paul wasn't about beating the air aimlessly. He wasn't about um, going and doing things in a certain way that he would be disqualified or serve as a castaway is the literal understanding there. Paul went about his ministry with everything that he had. And in Philippians chapter 3, we see that as well. He counts all things lost for the sake of gaining Christ. All the spiritual trophies that he used to hold up as important, he counted them as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him. I believe we also look at this and we, we think about Paul. Was he obedient? Was he disobedient? The Bible doesn't say that Paul sinned in going to Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting when you fast forward to what's going to happen. In Acts chapter 23, in verse 1, Paul is before the Sanhedrin. He's looking earnestly at the council and he said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. If you fast forward into chapter 24, in verse 16, his defense before Felix, he says... This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God in men. I don't believe he, he was sinning and not going if, if he was to say, okay, I'm not going to go. Think about it on the other hand, too. If he didn't go, think about Agabus' prophecy. That wouldn't have come true, would it? If he had chosen, oh, okay, and listen to the voices and not go. Agabus prophesied, this is what's going to happen to the one goes to Jerusalem. Paul is intent on listening primarily to what the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, has already spoken to him on, already cleared some things on. Paul has a clear conscience. I think we need to also look at Paul's motives for going. What was his motive for going to Jerusalem? Do you remember? Why is he going to Jerusalem? Why did he have such a desire to go to Jerusalem? He had a desire, first and foremost, to help the poor in the church at Jerusalem. Remember, he was going back through Macedonia and Achaia to collect an offering to take back to the poor. Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, right after, right after the pillars in the church had extended that right hand of fellowship, 
Verse 10 says, James, Cephas, and John desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. He also had a desire to bring unity to the church, to see the Gentile church unite together with the church at Jerusalem. And we see at the end of Romans chapter 15, verse 27, Paul says, It pleased them indeed, those in Macedonia and Achaia, it pleased them that they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. There was this bridging the gap in the churches, bringing the churches together. Paul was about that. His motive in going to Jerusalem seems to be meeting the needs of the poor brethren in Jerusalem. And at the same time, trying to tear down the walls that still in some areas, in some regions, it still existed between the Gentiles and the Jews. And Paul endeavored to see unity in the body of Christ. As you read what Paul says, I hope you hear his convictions in the text. I'm ready. I'm ready not only to be bound like Agabus is bound. I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. One writer said Paul was convinced that he moved and ministered in the purpose and power of God. And from that unshakable conviction came his indomitable courage. Another writer said in his commentary on this particular part in Acts, he reminds us that the Spirit's word to Paul combined the compulsion to go to Jerusalem with a warning of the consequences. So how are these believers here in light of what Paul said in 13, how are they going to respond to Paul's words? Their response, I believe, is also instructive to us. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. They stopped. They remember they were pleading and pleading and pleading with him not to go. After hearing Paul, the text says they stopped saying, the will of the Lord be done. They ceased trying to persuade him any longer. But notice that they don't just, they don't just throw up their arms in disgust. They don't complain. They don't get bitter at Paul still set on going to Jerusalem. What do they do? They respond appropriately by saying, the will of the Lord be done. How many times have you been more concerned about winning the argument, compiling the evidence, seeking out your own desires at the expense of seeing the will of the Lord done? And we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 3. After Samuel has received the word of the Lord, the next morning, you might remember, Eli approaches Samuel and wants to hear what the Lord has spoken. And so Samuel tells him what the Lord has said. He doesn't hide any of the details. He tells him and he says, here's the response. In Samuel 3.18, here's how Eli responds. Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what is good. Let him do what seems good. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Luke 22.42. He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, in teaching his followers how to pray, said these words in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Is it your desire to see the will of the Lord accomplished in your life? 
See, these men ceased from trying to persuade Paul any longer, and they simply said, not in some feeble resignation, but they said, the Lord's will be done. The friends and companions of Paul were no doubt heartfelt in their pleadings with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But according to the text, the Lord's will is that Paul go to Jerusalem. The warnings of the Holy Spirit do not trump the calling of the Holy Spirit for the work that the Holy Spirit set Paul apart to do. So there's a discerning of the will of the Lord. It's a large subject matter. And in short, good discernment requires the indwelling of the Holy Spirit coupled with knowledge and understanding from the word of the Lord. As you make decisions in your own life, are they consistent with the Spirit's leading? Which is always going to line up with the Scriptures. Never will the Spirit of God contradict what the Word of God says. Paul packs his things, moves on to Jerusalem, accompanied by a Caesarean following. And arriving at Jerusalem, look at the reception they get in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. This is the calm before the storm. For we see in just a few verses later, in verse 36, as Paul is chained amidst a threatening mob, they're crying out, away with him. A welcome in verse 17, away with him in verse 36. Think Jesus for a moment. The chains and tribulations are coming, but the will of the Lord is being carried out. Paul is going to stand before kings. Acts 19 says that he was going to do that. He's going to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in the long days ahead. He's going to finish his race with joy. He's taken on the charge of what the Lord Jesus himself has given. He's content with that, even though it may very well cost him his life. Paul has traveled many miles for the sake of the gospel. His heart for the Lord is expressed in his love for his own countrymen, his love for the Gentiles. And he seems to always have an ear to hear what the Lord's will is for his life. Paul's will is conformed to the Lord's will. And that will, according to the scriptures, is bound to confront opposition in this world. Amen? It's going to. This God of the scriptures is your life witness testifying to the Lord who willingly walked up Calvary to die on your behalf. Is it possible that your idea of God is too safe? If we have heard and read Acts 13 through 21, Paul's missionary journeys, I believe we can conclude Nothing less than God's work is offensive to many, oftentimes dangerous, and commonly held in derision. The Holy Spirit in you will guide you and encourage you as you encounter trials and tribulations. The Holy Spirit will provide words to speak. He will serve as your comfort. He will serve as your strength through those trials. He will point you to the very words of Jesus. He will bear witness within your own spirit that you are a child of God. John chapter 16, verse 13, at the end of 13, Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. He will tell you things to come. You know, I oftentimes read that in John's gospel, and oftentimes I wonder, what is that getting at? 
He'll tell you things to come. It came to light as I'm reading the text today. He will tell you things to come because the warning that was put forth by the Holy Spirit on many occasions is something that was yet to come. The Holy Spirit tells of things to come. It's a great example of what Jesus was communicating to his own disciples before the cross in John 16, verse 13. Samuel heard a word from the Lord in a day when the word of the Lord was rare. May the word of the Lord, may the spirit of the Lord take this word of the Lord and impress it deeply upon our soul. And would ask that you would listen for the word of the Lord. And when he speaks through his word in good spirit. Will you listen and be quick to conform your will to what he's spoken? Will you exercise obedience and walk by faith even though you may not fully understand? What seems to be the pattern in scripture is that the light that the Lord gives, as we are obedient to walk in the light he does give, the Lord will then give additional light to walk in. What a joy to have the Spirit of God dwelling within. The Spirit of God searches out these things of God and reveals them as He deems fit. So be clear on what the Holy Spirit is saying and what the Word of the Lord says. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Ephesians 6.10 Be careful to discern the voice of well-intentioned friends. Be careful to discern whether you are one of those well-intentioned friends who speaks without recognition of the Lord's work in that other brother's life or sister's life. Above all things, out of love for Christ and His church, in an effort to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit, desire the will of the Lord to be done. Our response simply ought to be, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth that you've given to us through your word. Father, I thank you for the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers in Jesus Christ. Father, for those who may be here today who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's my prayer, Father, that they would be drawn to you. They would be convicted of their sin. They would see the need and desire to repent of their sin. To then turn to you. To then live a life empowered by this one we've been speaking of this morning, the Holy Spirit. A life empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk with you. Father, as a church, we've been called to walk together in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Father, I pray you grant us grace to do that and where it is, where it is possible that we would desire to live at peace 
with all men. Lord, help us to do that. Give us grace to do that. Minister through us, Lord. It's our desire to, to want to be used, to be your vessels. And Father, where you have called us and separated us to do a work for you. Father, I pray that we'd be diligent to obey that call. Your Holy Spirit sets us apart for your work and your ministry. Father, I pray that we'd be receptacle vessels in these days ahead. That we would be content with your will being done in our lives. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.